Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Welcome again this morning. Uh, I'm so grateful that you decided to join us. And if this is this is if this is your first time to gather with us to join us, we really say welcome. We thank you for de- making this decision. We believe uh, there is a message for you this morning. I, I just want to say again, thank you to our senior pastors, Pastor Brown and Pastor Darren, for what they continue to do to lead us, pray for us as as a church, the chapel. Amadel, Ganeda, uh, Gara. Tamworth, we love you and we believe that we will see you very, very soon. We will continue with uh, our series on the book of Mark. The book of Mark, uh, Pastor, Pastor Brown spoke about around the, the, the parable of the sower last week. And she brought some great, uh, deep revelations, as we say. <laughs> Uh, she brought some great thoughts around that uh, that conversation last week. So, I, if you you didn't you did not follow, you can just go on our um, YouTube uh, our, our podcast and listen to the message. That was really really great. Today we are going to continue with another topic, which is still in the book of Mark, and Jesus is asking his disciples a question: Who do you say that I am. He asked this question to his disciple in a very, very strategic way. I believe that Jesus is the greatest influencer or the greatest communicator who has ever lived. That's my, that's my belief. I think Jesus was really good in communicating. He's a great, great influencer. How do we recognize influencers? How do we know if someone is a good influencer? So there are three things that defines or three things, three things that we can look at to know if someone is a good influencer. The first one is ethos. I will define that. They will bring it to you. Ethos is the ethical appeal or means to convince an audience through the credibility or character of the speaker. So if the speaker, if the person who is talking aligns his character to what he's saying or she's saying, the audience will believe. The authority of the the speaker comes from their character. So that is their ethos. And for speakers, this kind of authority, Jesus was, was excellent in this area. He was excellent with his character, what he was saying and what he was doing were aligned. The second one is pathos. Pathos is the emotional appeal or means to persuade an audience by appealing to their emotions. Politicians do this a lot. Politicians can say things to make people angry or make people sad or give people hope to manipulate the the, 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 the mass. But using people's emotion was is not just to manipulate people. In the way of communicating, 
You need to tap into people's emotions so that people can listen, understand you, touch people's heart. And Jesus was very good at this. He was very strategic in touching people's heart. He knew what to say, when to say it, and how to say it to touch people's heart. And the last one is logos. Logos is the appeal to logic. It is the means to convince an audience by use of logic or reason. So that comes the substance of what you are saying. Jesus was really good. at He was extremely wise in what he was saying. Even the intellectual of those times, they were amazed by what he was saying, the depth of his messages. So his ethos, his pathos, his logos were perfect, excellent. No one has even tried to go closer to where Jesus uh, Jesus. Uh, ability of communication was. The substance of his message and the creativity by which he presented his messages are second to none. He used crops, locations, parables to capture the imagination and the heart of his audience. He picked the right time, the right location, the right audience to ask the right questions to the right people. Most of the time we are misunderstood because we ask a wrong question first in a wrong place to a wrong group of people with a wrong tone and everything wrong and then we get in trouble. If we can just learn to know which room you are in, <laughs> which question to ask, who to ask the question at what time, that will save us from a lot of trouble, mostly when you're asking your wife. Be careful, mind the location. The location of the conversation in Mark chapter eight, verse 27 to 33, is one of those thoughtfully, very thoughtfully picked locations. In Mark chapter, chapter eight, 27 to 23, I will read, I will read. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. If you want, you can say, you can say it Caesarea Philippi. It depends on which school you went to. The one I went to, they said Caesarea Philippi. That's, that I think that's the right, you know, the high level pronunciation. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked them again, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He was openly talking about this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Location, location, location. Location, location, location. The Bible only records 
Jesus traveling to Caesarea Philippi on this one occasion. That's the only time we hear about this place. Why would Jesus take a 14-hour trip, walk to this place from Galilee, where he was doing all his ministry or all his work? He spent all, all his activities, almost all of them, there. Why would Jesus leave Galilee and just walk to this place in this one occasion to have this conversation? That is important for us. Caesarea Philippi, if you're interested in history or geography, I will give you some tips. Caesarea Philippi was a town built upon and on a big rock located at the, root, at the foot of a mountain called Hermon. This place is known as the source of the Jordan River. Augustus Caesar, Augustus, Augustus, Augustus. Again, which school I went to, I will pronounce it depending on which school I went to. Augustus Caesar gave this region to Herod. Then Herod gave it to one of his sons called Philip. So this Philip named this place Caesarea Philippi as a combination of both leaders' names. This town was believed to be a mysterious town because they had a statue in this town of a Greek god called Pan, P-A-N, who was believed to have the ability to cross the head and return to earth as a human being. So they believe there is a god who returns to earth as a human being called Pan, and they built in this town, Caesarea Philippi, a statue of that god. There was another statue of Caesar. Caesar, the emperor, was also believed to be a human being who had the abilities of a god. I think you are following me. There is a god who came as a human, and there is a human who is a god. Both of them in this town, their statues are there. So after spending two years and a half with his disciples, healing people, working unthinkable miracles, and speaking with divine wisdom and authority, Jesus took his disciples to this place where they could be looking at these two statues. Imagine Jesus is taking them there. Then he asked them, who do you think that I am? Who do people think that I am? He could also ask, this is my, my version now, Mike version. Compared to these two statues, who do you think I am? That's why he took them in that place. The location, the timing, and the audience in this situation are so perfect to create a contrast with a divine being statue believed to be to appear as a man and a, a, a statue of a man believing to be divine. Jesus was challenging their schemata. This is another scientific word, schematic structure. I will define that for you. I know some of you know this. In her book, Perception of Communication in Intercultural Spaces, Professor Lili Arasaratnam defined schemata as our, our perception is influenced by our schemata, which are cognitive structures with which we understand our environment. 
It simply means that we perceive everything we see in comparison to something we have seen before. Our brain. When I meet a Chinese person or someone with a Chinese ancestry, I don't need to ask them if they are Chinese to know it. My brain will refer to other Chinese I've seen before, people with Chinese ancestry, and my brain will tell me this person is Chinese based on the schemata in me, based on my schematic structure. So I don't think I should ask to know. And I'm not talking about, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about racism here. I'm just talking about how we get to know people and places. When I meet a Caucasian person, I know they are Caucasians because I've seen Caucasians before. Let me give you one example. My father went to preach to Norway in Scandinavia, Europe, in 1959. He, when he got there, people were running to him, to him after service and ask him questions and try to touch his skin because they've never seen a black person before. They were not racist. They were just amazed to see that beautiful skin. No, they were just amazed to see something that they are, they are, they are schematic structure never seen before. So I'm not talking about stereotype here. Even st stereotype is also another format of schemata. But this is in a, in a positive way. You can use it in a negative way or a positive way. So Jesus is taking them there where he wants their brain to see something, to remember something they've seen before. Then he asks this important question, who do people say that I am? In their schematic structures, this position helps them to understand the question. Because they will refer to the statues, the statutes, the statues they are seeing uh, around them. So, they said, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, others, one of the prophets. Why? Because in that area, in people's schematic structures, Someone who displays such power to work miracles, great wisdom, and uh, unquestionable character was definite, definitely a super, supernatural person. They knew. We've seen something like this before. But they could only compare him to something they've seen, which is John, which is Elijah, which are the prophets. So their brain could only tap into something they've seen before. Maybe you are also here, but you are holding a view about Jesus, the same thing. Your perception or your schematic structure tells you Jesus is a great philosopher. I agree that Jesus is a great teacher. Or Jesus, maybe that's your view. I don't blame you for thinking that way. I did not blame them for thinking that way. Maybe by the end of this conversation, by the end of this message, you will reconsider your view of who Jesus is. One thing I want you to know, your view on Jesus determines how you live your life now and how you will spend your life eternally. After testing what people think about him, Jesus turned to his own crew his own disciples who have been following him for 
two and a half years and ask, but who do you say that I am? I understand those people. I understand they've never seen something like me before. They, what they know is John, they know Elijah, they, and you. I've been with you for two years. Who do you think that I am? I can imagine Peter looking at the statue of the Greek god Pan and compare that to Jesus and say, no, this, this, the, the master is above this one. Look at the statue of, of, the, of, of, of Caesar and say, no, no, the master is beyond this one. And then just Peter, something happened to Peter. Something supernatural happened to Peter. And suddenly he remembered that the Messiah was supposed to come in a divine being form, as a divine being in a human form. Peter remembers, ah, this must be the Messiah. This must be the Messiah. And Peter said, you are the Messiah. In Peter's schematic structure, he remembered this. The Messiah was promised to be the deliverer of the Jewish nation prophesied in the Hebrew Bible. So when Peter saw Jesus, he said, this is the guy. We've never seen such a thing before. This is beyond all the Johns and the Lejazah and all the prophets. This one is the Messiah. Peter got it. He got it. He understood that Jesus ticked all the boxes to be the Messiah, who is the, his nation's deliverer. They've been waiting for him. But one thing Peter forgot, he got it half. He understood Jesus in a half way. He did not understand well his mission, what the Messiah was really, the scope of the Messiah's mission. And then Peter started to rebuke Jesus and tell him, how can you say this? You are going to die. The Messiah cannot die. If you read the scripture, you'll understand that Peter took Jesus aside and told, I told him, you can't die. The Messiah cannot die. The Messiah came to save us. The Messiah came to build an army and cast out the, the, the Romans, overthrown them. Jesus, after Peter told him he's the Messiah, he did one thing I want to bring to your attention. He strictly warned them not to tell anyone. We call that the messianic secret. That's what the theologians call it. You don't have to memorize it. Many times he healed people. Many times Jesus... Uh, operates miracles, he asked people not to talk about it. Why? In my view, Jesus did not want people to talk about it because he was avoiding a false expectation from the Jews. The same thing Peter did. Jesus did not want people to think the Messiah has come to overthrow the Romans. He wanted the expectations to be right. He knew if they begin to talk about it in the wrong way, he will, they, will, they will have this wrong expectation and disappointment. Uh, it did not prevent it to happen. But that was the reason why he was hiding. No, no, don't talk about it yet. I want to fulfill what I came to fulfill first. 
right after telling them not to tell anyone, he started to teach them because he did not want them to leave that place with that false image. And he told them, I will be killed and rise after three days. Please. He said it. I will be killed and rise after three days. But Peter did not still understand that Jesus said, I will rise after three days. He did not hear that part of the story. He just understood that Jesus will die. And no, 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 you can't die. I said I will rise after three days. Peter did not hear that. He just wanted the Messiah to do what Peter wanted the Messiah to do. The expectation of Peter was the Messiah should build an army. Peter forgot that Jesus came for something bigger than just making Israel great again. Jesus came for something bigger than being the president of the free republic of Israel. That was not his mission. Anybody could do that. Any good leader could build an army and fight the, the Romans. Jesus came to deal with something greater than Romans occupation. Jesus came to deal with the reason why the Romans were there at first place. The Romans came to occupy Israel because of human selfishness and, and pride. Human beings are selfish. And Jesus came to deal with human hearts. He knew if he deals with the heart, the outside will change. Jesus came to deal with sin. He knew that conquering the Romans will not solve the Jews' problem. The Jews would still fight among themselves, even if Jesus conquered the Romans. That's why he needed to die and rise again. Peter did not hear that part of the story. Jesus clearly said he will rise after three days. Peter was not listening. How many times we miss God's blessings because we want it to come to us in a shape and form that we expected? If we say, if it's from God, then it has to be tall and thin. It has to come from a man, not from a woman. Then it should be blue and not red. Sometimes God speaks through a simple man like me and God is speaking. Jesus knew that he needed to correct their view of the Messiah. He traveled to that place to declare he was the Messiah. Not the type of Messiah they were expecting, but much bigger than that. He told them, on the third day, I will rise again. And he did it. He predicted his own death and resurrection and he did it. That's why comparing him to Moses, to John, or to Elijah, or to any other prophet was a big mistake. Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, and it came to pass. No one has done it before. No prophet has done it before. Moses did not do it. Uh, Abraham did not do it. Elijah did not do it. None of them did it. Mohammed did not do it. Jesus did it. He's above and beyond any prophet, any wise person you've ever seen before. The question today to you is, do you, who do you say that he is? 
Who do you say that Jesus is? He's asking you the same question. Who do you say that I am? Remember, your view on Jesus determines how you live your life now and how you will spend your life eternally. Why you will spend eternity depends on the object of your faith, not you, not the subject of your faith. Your attitude toward him, your response to this question, not only changes your life now, but it affects your life forever. Jesus is not the type of person you can just ignore easily. Jesus demands a response when you hear from him. He is the common denominator for humanity. Jesus is the Messiah. His victory is not just over the Romans. He came to conquer the greatest enemies humanity has ever faced before, sin and death. While Peter was expecting him to conquer the Romans as his greatest achievement, Jesus was aiming for the greatest battle, conquering sin and death. The Messiah, the Savior, came to take the punishment of sin upon himself so that whoever believes in him will not be punished for their own sin. Every sin you have ever committed and every sin you will ever commit was nailed with Jesus on that cross. Which means if you believe in Jesus today, all your sin can be forgiven today and forever. And that's not all. You will also be alive. You have access to eternal life forever. Your view on Jesus determines how you live your life now and how you will spend your life eternally. Learning about Jesus demands a response. As I said before, no one can answer this question for you. Jesus is asking you today, and you, who do you say that I am? I want you to know this. Jesus did not, die, did not need to die. He did not need any victory over sin or death. He did not need victory over Satan. Jesus did not need it. Jesus created Satan. You need to know that. He cast him out of heaven because of pride. Jesus has always been victorious over death. He's God. He's always been victorious over sin. But why did Jesus die? He died because he did it for you. He did it with you. He did it despite of you. Jesus died for us. He died with us. He died despite of us. For us means that each one of us was supposed to pay the price of our own sin. But Jesus paid the price for us. He faced the consequences of our lies, our hatred, our immorality. He faced the consequences with us. It means that when Jesus went on that cross, he took you and I, supernaturally speaking, on that cross. You and I died with Jesus on that cross. Despite of us means that even when we ignore him, we reject him, Jesus still died for us. Even if you reject him, you need to know he's still extending his love to you. He still loves you. He still died for you. Even if you reject him, he died for you. He died with you. He died despite of you. The victory over Satan, Satan 
was the victory for you. It was not his victory. It was your victory because Jesus has always been victorious over Satan. His victory over death was your victory. Jesus has always been God. He wanted you to receive life. That's why he conquered death. So that when, even if you die in this world, you will live forever because of what Jesus did. You will have access to eternal life. The victory over sin was not his victory. Jesus never sinned. He's never sinned. It was your victory, my victory. Jesus took on the cross. He wanted us to receive victory over sin in this world and perfect victory in the life to come. All Jesus did was for you, was with you, was despite of you. No one can answer this question for you today. I'm asking you, the Messiah, the Savior came to take your punishment for your sin upon himself, so that if you believe in him, you will not be punished for your own sin. Who do you say that he is? The power is not into the subject of faith. It is into the object of your faith. Who do you say he is? What, what do you believe about him? It's not about the good, how good you are. It's not about how bad you are. It's about who you believe in. Who do you say Jesus is? Your view on him determines how you live your life now, your life now, and how you will live it eternally. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for my brother and my sister who has been listening and know that you are the Messiah, the Savior. Today, I pray that you will give them the grace to make a decision to believe in you as the Savior, to believe in you as the Messiah who came to save us, not just from the Romans' occupation, but he came to save us from sin and the consequences of sin so that we don't need to die for our own sins. We don't need to carry the burden of our own sins. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.